Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 136 being recorded on Thursday, June 28th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, Jason, uh, listeners that are paying very close attention will notice we took a little bit of a summer vacation off, um, so we haven't really podcasted for the last couple of weeks, but it's exciting to get back to it, and we have a lot of news to report on and some analysis of some big things that happened in e-commerce over the last couple of weeks. Plus, we've had some listeners very patiently waiting some for, with some questions that they wanted to ask us, so that's going to be re- the real focus of the show tonight. So let's start off with some Amazon news. Your margin is their opportunity. It wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without some Amazon news, and there is no shortage today. We're going to go through kind of the cream of the crop here. Uh, so the big one uh, is, and I know you've been on pins and needles, Jason, like I am, is when is Amazon Prime Day? Well, it has leaked, and it looks like it's going to be July 16th to 17th. And like last year, they're going to do kind of the day and the half of deals. So I am pretty excited. I've been saving uh, some of my gadget money on the side, and I'm going to be watching carefully to see what's offered this year. Yeah, I uh, am right there with you. Um, it, it feels like uh, as the, as it gets more and more entrenched, you know, the, the deals and stuff get better every year. And uh, I think there's been some interesting evidence that it's now starting to have a meaningful impact on back to school, that people are literally like planning their back to school spend around Prime Day. Yeah. Um, any gadgets on your wish list? Or I think you already have every flavor of Amazon Echo, if, I, if I'm correct, but anything not that you don't have? I, uh, so to be honest, uh, the stuff that's currently available, I th- uh, there's nothing on my wish list. So I, I'll be curious to hear if there's some deal that uh, usually there'll be a deal on something that entices me or, or something that's a relatively new release. There are some new fire products that I don't have. Um, but I'm not sure I really need to add them to my repertoire. Got it. I, um, I save all year, um, for my little accessory cables. So I'll probably be buying like 20 iOS cables and USB C's and we go through those like crazy at my house. So this is my time of year when I stock up on all that good stuff. My wife thinks I have a hoarding problem with those things and I like, uh, but I'm not smart enough to wait for the deal. So like, you know, I get my, I, sh- I would be the one customer that would do the subscription service from anchor. <laughs> yes. I do buy a lot of anchor product on prime day. That's like the, the juicy stuff I keep an eye out for. Yes. And I'm a little, um, uh, uh, OCD about it. I like, I have my, my cables color coded. So like all my lightning cables are red and all my, 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 uh, USB are black so I can easily visually identify what I need. Very cool. There was a big acquisition today. I know that you're probably excited about because we've talked about this category on the show. Did you see that one? I did. I did. And, uh, I have to go back and check our predictions, but I think this is even one of my predictions for the year, which um, uh, I'm somewhat excited about. Uh, Darn it. Ugh. Yeah, I, I thought you might not have considered that. Uh, but so today, Amazon announced that they acquired a company called PillPack. And this is a $1 billion acquisition, which is uh, on, you know, not the biggest, obviously, uh, with, with Whole Foods, but on the bigger side of the acquisitions for Amazon. Um, and PillPack is a male fulfillment pharmacy um, that specialize in custom packaging. So their primary customer are uh, folks that have chronic conditions and have to take multiple prescriptions daily. And PillPack make these custom packages of their particular caplet. So you get this like, you know, nice sealed um, uh, baggie of the pills you're supposed to take every day. And so uh, that simplifies life for a lot of people that have to take a lot of medications. Um, and it, it is a good customer experience and arguably 
Um, it it is in and of itself a a nice uh, way to reduce friction and improve the the prescription process. Uh, but I think the reason most people are are super interested in the Amazon acquisition is less because of their unique twist on mail order prescriptions and more the fact that this is Amazon buying a licensed pharmacy and jumping into the pharmacy space with two feet. Um, we've seen them sort of towed it before. Uh, of course, they they uh, made an investment in drugstore.com many years ago. And uh, last year, they got a bunch of uh, medical equipment pharmaceutical licenses in a bunch of states, which allowed them to sell like oxygen dispensing equipment and gloves and a lot of the the medical equipment. But this is uh, now giving them access to actually fill uh, prescription medications. And so, you know, a lot of us have been speculating that this would be another industry that Amazon would attack. Um, and, you know, as usually happens with these things with Amazon, uh, the you know i think their market cap went up by you know they they invested a billion dollars their market cap went up by like 15 or 20 billion today depending on what time you looked um and the big pharmaceutical companies um Walgreens and uh, CVS lost about 15 billion dollars in market cap today and it was kind of funny uh, i think Walgreens had a investor call today and and they you know they the the Walgreens CEO, you know, actually uttered the phrase that we we make fun of on the show all the time, uh, that he's not very worried about Amazon, that pharmacy, pharmacy is much more complicated than all the other categories Amazon's tackled, and it'll be much different. They'll never figure it out, just like uh, apparel and what Macy yeah. said there. They can't figure it out. Returns exactly. are too hard. Return, Macy's is positive that returns are too complicated, and all the apparel companies are positive that everyone wants to try clothes on before they order them, and and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Usually a bad bet. There are complications to the pharmacy, but I would argue that, that Amazon is very good at solving for complications. Um, and then just a couple other sort of interesting uh, snippets around the acquisition. Uh, there are rumors that that uh, Walmart was the primary acquirer uh, of PillPack and um that Amazon swooped in at the last minute with a higher offer and sort of uh, stole PillPack out from under Walmart. So does um, do you know if so? I, so I know Amazon was kind of self-registering in a bunch of states. Does PillPack get them into all the U.S. Uh, or you know do you, do you, do you happen to know that? I don't think so. So I think PillPack okay. has only certain states that they have access to. Um, and th there still is a pretty big barrier, like, like, so having the pharmaceutical license is one thing, um, but to really, uh, be a hundred percent in the, the pharmacy space, you also need all the insurers to, um, agree to partner with you and like, accept your, your claims against all the various insurance companies. And so what, what a lot of the traditional pharmacies think is the big barrier to Amazon is that Amazon doesn't have those those deals with all the insurers. And so, you know, not to say Amazon can't cut all those deals and they probably will, um, but that's potentially a multi-year process. And so a lot of people are speculating um, that day one, Amazon would focus on the subset of the pharmaceutical market that's paying uh, out of pocket for, for medication, either because they're un, uninsured or because the, um, uh, because they have some uh, limitations or restrictions on the insurance that make them want to pay out of pocket. Um, and then, you know, there's, uh, I guess, some speculation that Amazon would would even acquire an insurer, which would then, of course, let them be the fulfillment partner for that, right? And there's, there's that, you know, there's a separate initiative that Amazon is doing with um, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, around revamping healthcare. And, and you know, one of the, the speculated outcomes of that is a potential new insurance product that could potentially partner with, with Amazon pharmacy. Yeah. And they just announced the CEO for that entity. So it seems like it's getting some momentum there. Um, for those listeners that d didn't listen to kind of our predictions for the year, maybe, you know, what, what's this mean for a CVS or a Walgreens? Um, you know, let, let's say Amazon successfully can compete on the, the pharmacy side, at least the pill dispensing, um, you know, are those things convenient enough still or, you know, do you think that, you know, this is a problem? Yeah. So here's what's interesting. So the um, 
the the traditional drugstores, the Walgreens and uh, uh, CVS's, uh, their whole business is predicated on foot traffic coming in to fill prescriptions, um, and so the like they they don't tend to be super price competitive on all the over the counter products that they sell in the store, and they don't tend to be a destination for any of those products for very many consumers. But what happens is you go in to get your Lipitor, and you realize. Uh, that you need some snacks or you need some tissue paper or you need some Advil or whatever the case is while you're in the store. And so if a significant number of customers no longer need to visit Walgreens to pick up their prescription, um, the Walgreens brick and mortar model literally doesn't work. Like there is not a, a like another compelling reason for traffic to go in those stores Um and so, you know, either that would, you know, put Walgreens in huge distress or Walgreens would have to sort of find some way to reinvent their their retail space. Um, and, you know, most most of the analysts look at those retailers and say, hey, the big investments those guys are making is are in insurance companies. And they're really their their plan is to sort of pivot from being a brick and mortar retailer to being a, a, a healthcare provider that's not tied to brick and mortar. Um, and, you know, is. We've talked about a few times on the show, Amazon doesn't have to capture 50 percent of the pharmacy market or anything like it. You know, if, if they can take a 10 percent or 15 percent dent in the traffic of those stores like that probably puts them over a tipping point that makes those stores not profitable. Um, and so it's uh, a very material threat to traditional drug stores. Um, whether Amazon's successful or not, if a bunch of consumers just decide that it's better to have uh, their pharmaceuticals delivered to home, um, and there are many companies trying to do that, uh, then you know that puts that same stress on those drugstores. It's been interesting. The kind of traditional mail order pharmacy um, hasn't really gained a lot of momentum. So there's a you know insurers insurance companies drive people to mail order pharmacy, and there's a percentage of consumers that get their stuff via mail order. Um, but the percentage of people that use mail order has actually shrunk a little bit in the last couple of years. And so it'll be interesting if Amazon can come up with a new enough experience or if these custom pill packs are a, a big enough value add that they, you know, permanently change that that consumer behavior, which will, you know, really uh, put a challenge in the drugstores. And I, I would expect to see a ton of drugstores close. It just sounds so slow, mail delivery. Yeah, sounds, and maybe mail like is the wrong word, right? Like, I mean, it, you know, you can imagine all kinds of same-day fulfillment centers. Like, at the moment, you know, people tend to get get the home delivery of, of prescriptions when they're chronic things that you take year-round, right? And when you, you know, God forbid you're sick and the doctor calls in a prescription or you go see a doctor and they call in a prescription that you pick up, like, those are the things you're more likely to walk in and, and get, but but of course, there's no reason that pharmacies couldn't prepare those those um, meds, or Amazon, you know, own pharmacies couldn't prepare those meds and deliver them in one hour to your house. Yeah, yeah. So it could be a cool Prime thing, like Prime Pharmacy, where you know, auto refills. Um, you know, the pharmacies I deal with, like they never call the doctor and do stuff right, so Amazon could solve a lot of that stuff. So it, there's it a would, ton of friction in the current experience yeah. that like we as consumers have just learned to deal with um, that, that you could imagine someone like Amazon taking out of the experience and, and make it game changing, like in the, in the same way that Uber disrupted the taxi industry. Cool. Well, that was one of your predictions. And one of mine was about Amazon delivery. Uh, and today there was an announcement about that. So we're kind of a uh, kind of, even on this, I guess, um, Amazon sent out this really interesting, uh, effectively a, a call to entrepreneurs to build delivery capability that that Amazon will then leverage. Um, you know, they've they're uh, as we've covered on the show a lot. They're they're really worried about the capacity out there in the network. Um, they're building their own direct, uh, and this was really what I would consider a call to arms for entrepreneurs to build a 1099 kind of delivery network. Um, you know, they talk about going out, starting a business uh, for a minimum of 10k. They'll lease you the vans that are Amazon branded uniforms, and then they talk about how in their models uh, of doing this, you can make up to $300,000 in profit a year. Um, so that's pretty interesting. And um, uh, a little unknown thing is FedEx Ground uh, did this. They had 
they had a lot of 1099s that were individuals, and then there was some kind of a court thing that happened where that was deemed that they should be employees. So they rolled all that up into businesses. So when you see FedEx ground delivery out there, it is a it is a 1099 network. Uh, it'll frequently say, you know, uh, FedEx ground operated by, and there'll be some little LLC brand there, kind of small, small down by the door. Um, the, they have built a similar kind of a network. So uh, this is going to be interesting to see how Amazon builds this out, if there's certain areas they're targeting, uh, and then also what this means for the flex drivers, which is more of an Uber individual kind of a thing. I wonder if they're kind of hedging. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, people believe the Uber 1099 model is at risk, uh, that that same kind of litigation will happen, that they're actually should be treated as employees. Um, this would give Amazon another kind of an option uh, uh, on delivery if that were to happen to the flex driver thing, too. So, so it kind of covers several bases. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And I, in my mind, I could imagine um, that it's, easier for Amazon to uh, enforce and achieve certain uh, service levels with these um, individual with these business operators over the 1099s ie you know it like y- you can require these businesses to buy these Amazon branded trucks and to wear Amazon uniforms and things that are like uh, less convenient and economically viable uh, to impose on on uh, individual 1099 workers. Yeah, I, I should have mentioned it, but um, one of the things they're going to provide is the software. So they're going to give you all of the software needed to run a business like this. Um, I think it's from an acquisition they did that they've kind of uh, been using internally, um, and, you know, maybe as part of Flex. And now they've uh, they're they're part of this whole deal is they will give you the software, which is kind of a clever way for them to have visibility into the SLAs, right? They can kind of see, you know, if you're using their software in the cloud, presumably they'd be able to see, you know, how you're doing against LAs, uh, and maybe they'll require you to use their software because they they'd want to be able to see that. Yeah, I mean, I read through the whole program, and to me, it feels exactly like a franchisee model. Like, I mean, they've. They've completely templatized the whole business. They they give you all the processes and software. Like they literally have like the the training program down and the hiring recommendations for these businesses. And they have the whole economic model. Like they essentially say that like, hey, you know, depending on how quickly you scale, you're gonna make between you're gonna uh, net between seventy k and three hundred k a year in this business. Uh, anything else about the Amazon? By the way, what I just found somewhat interesting, the Amazon delivery was this big planned PR thing and they had a bunch of media to Seattle and they, you know, gave the media all this story under embargo. And so, you know, today was the big announce day and they got a bunch of press over that, over over all that. And then it, it feels like it kind of got stepped on when they announced the PillPack acquisition you know, which they did none of this pre-press planning for. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes best, you know, the best plans kind of get crushed by that. The they they probably had to react to Walmart. You know, the acquisition was on its own timetable that they couldn't control, and it just kind of unfortunately probably landed on the same day. Yeah. Happens sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another interesting thing that came out last week is. Um, AdAge does this uh, evaluation of all the top advertisers every year um, and uh, a surprise uh, appearance on the top 10 list was Amazon as the fourth largest advertiser in the United States. Um, So they're spending more on advertising than folks like Ford, GM, and they're the retailer that's spending the most on advertising. So they're actually spending more on advertising than Walmart is. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it, it's funny because for you know for the longest time, uh, Bezos said they would never really do marketing because they preferred to put all that money into shipping, and you know that that word of mouth mouth was the best marketing. But then once they came out with Kindle, they've had to really kind of start doing some marketing. And and I would imagine if you looked, uh, the bulk of that is going to be around Alexa. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's totally fair. They've developed a bunch of owned brands, and they've. They've had to market to support those own brands. Um, but I, I do think, you know, that uh, and they've kind of ebbed and flowed on this. Uh, they are also investing a lot more in performance marketing 
for just the core retail business at the moment than they they have it uh, in the recent past. So, so you know, leveraging Google products and things like that to drive more traffic to Amazon. Yeah, another interesting uh, Amazon news piece. This is kind of more internal facing, but I think listeners will will find it pretty uh, you know, fascinating. Uh, it was a little bit of clickbait. Uh, so the you know the article came out of Bloomberg and it, it showed one of the uh, the Kiva warehouse robots and it said you know Amazon's robots are moving from the warehouse to headquarters, which kind of you're like what are they going to deliver pencils or what's going on banana. Um, yeah, but, yes. uh, but what's really happening is, as we've reported on the show, we, we had uh, Andrea Lay on, and she was telling us about uh, some projects they had internally where an AI will very frequently negotiate with vendors, and they call it this whole hands-off-the-wheel initiative. Um, there are several layers to that. There's uh, there's vendor negotiations, but then there's also, you know, on the first party side, um, pitting uh, machines against humans to see who can piss, pick the best uh, products to put on Amazon uh, and buy. Uh, and at the same time, you also have the marketplace side of Amazon. So what's happening is it looks like uh, they're squishing all this together. Um, you know, the guy that ran the third party marketplace has moved over to a new project that's unannounced, Peter Farisee. Um, so they've wrapped up the marketplace and the one P team who used to be very disparate teams. You know, I would go to Amazon and be in meetings and introduce people across those teams. It was funny. Um, and it looks like the common thread there is less people. So uh, more machines kind of managing these categories because they effectively do a better job, more machines doing negotiations uh, and less people. And then this kind of integration of one P and three P I think this is good because uh, we found a lot of vendors get really confused in mixed messaging from Amazon where they'll go to one team at Amazon, they'll go to the marketplace apparel team and say, hey, we want to do X, Y, and Z. And they'll say, you know, oh, no, you have to do this, that, and the other. And then the 1P team will get a whole different answer. Um, so I think this will ultimately be good. And, you know, the 3P team, um, the 3P side of Amazon is getting bigger than the 1P side. So I, I think it'll be great to have a lot of that DNA kind of mixed in there. And, you know, there is a downside. This automation um, can be pretty frustrating to companies that are used to, the old school, you know, having going to, you know, Bentonville and shaking someone's hand and showing them the products and those kinds of things. This is uh, essentially you can stay home and chat with a robot and have the same outcome with Amazon now. So, uh, you know, it'll it'll be uh, interesting to see how vendors net out on this change. But it, it's pretty interesting that automation, uh, you know, at, at least according to Amazon's data, uh, has beat out people as as it comes to merchandising and negotiating with vendors. Yeah, for sure. Uh, two of the things that are interesting to me about that merger, um, I do feel like there's a way when they were more siloed in which sellers could potentially take advantage of the silos. So I do think there are brands that wanted to sell 3P on Amazon, didn't want to be 1P sellers because they wanted to control their own pricing. Like, And in principle, if you're going to be a 3P seller on Amazon, Amazon has the right to like also be a 1P seller um, but a lot of uh, brands seemingly fell between the cracks there and were able to be three pure three P sellers without being bothered by the one P guys. Um, and there's a lot of speculation that now that one P and three P are kind of merging, uh, that like you know that a Amazon's going to be a lot more purposeful about who can be a three P seller without be without Amazon having the option to be a one P seller. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And then the, the thing that I chuckle at with the hands off the wheel, I think it's a super apt metaphor. If you're a very big seller on Amazon, uh, you do have a, a human contact and you have this personal relationship. Um, and I think what's funny about that is it's exactly like the the safety driver in the autonomous vehicles. Like, you know, it maybe makes you feel better that there's a guy sitting in the driver's seat, but he actually isn't touching the steering wheel or the brake. And so you can have all the good conversations and take him to dinner and do all the relationship building you want. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the computer that's deciding, uh, you know, what the the terms of your, your trade relationship are with Amazon. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a you know that's the summary of some of the Amazon highlights over the last couple of weeks. Uh, the biggest news item is our very own Supreme Court in the United States got involved in e-commerce, and uh, I know you have a lot of interesting insights on this one. So I'm anxious to hear your thoughts uh, about what happened there. Yeah. Uh, so this is a case that the Supreme Court heard several months ago, and they they ruled. Uh, I guess this would be last week now. Um, uh, the the actual case the Supreme Court ruled on is called South Dakota versus Wayfair Overstock and Newegg, and a, a lot of people sort of shorten it to South Dakota versus Wayfair. And essentially, uh, South Dakota passed a law that said uh, we're going to require sell uh, sellers to collect sales tax when people in South Dakota buy goods from them, uh, even if the seller doesn't have a presence in South Dakota. Um, and uh, that there, there's actually a precedent um, based on a ruling the Supreme Court ruled on in 1992 that South Dakota can't do that, right? Like there's this precedent uh, called Quill, which was, uh, confusingly enough, it was actually Quill versus North Dakota uh, that, that uh, the Supreme Court ruled on in 1992 that essentially said, that in order for uh, a seller to be required to collect sales tax for a given state, they had to have a physical presence in that state to uh, establish nexus. And so a lot of pure play online retailers, um, based on that rule, like avoided having a presence in big populated states so that they didn't have to charge sales tax in those states. And uh, it actually determined where Amazon's corporate headquarters would be. When Jeff was, uh, Bezos was starting the company, this precedent was already in place. And so they, they picked Seattle because it was a good tech hub that didn't have a huge population and wouldn't be a huge customer base and avoided uh, having a presence in states like California that would be huge customer bases. And, and in the early days of Amazon, Amazon was super restrictive with their employees uh, they wouldn't let their employees, you know, do business travel to these states. They wouldn't let the campus recruiters like go to the the job fairs in the college states because they were they're being super careful to avoid establishing a physical presence so they could avoid paying taxes. Um, and so this this the Supreme Court uh, in this ruling essentially reverses that quill precedence. And so so now. It's going to be possible for states to pass laws that essentially require um, all uh, out-of-state sellers to collect sales tax and remit it to the those states. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of interesting things in that. First of all, uh, you know, a ton of the media, you know, was writing about how what a big win for Main Street this was and, you know, how it was a blow to Amazon and you know, the, the National Retail Federation, you know, kind of claimed it was a victory for retailers and in uh, tax fairness and all these things. Um, the, the reality is, in my mind, the biggest winner in this deal is Amazon. Um, and, uh, and the reason I say that is because uh, Amazon is already collecting tax. Amazon gave up avoiding that nexus a number of years ago. They're collecting tax in every state that has a tax. And the reason they do that is they wanted to put distribution centers everywhere and they wanted to put Prime Now centers everywhere. And they just found that it was better for them to collect the taxes uh, than to have all these impediments on where they could have a physical presence. So uh, this actually makes Amazon more competitive with other online pure plays, right? So it, it, it actually makes Amazon more competitive with Overstock and Newegg and, and like all these these uh, vertical specialty retailers like eFaucet that, you know, specialize in plumbing fixtures and aren't, aren't collecting tax. So it, it helps Amazon's 1P business be more competitive. Uh, the, the, tech, the sales tax that Amazon isn't collecting is from 3P sellers who have the option to collect the tax or not, and most don't. Um, and so this ruling is going to require all of Amazon's 3P sellers to collect tax, which is actually going to make Amazon's 1P business more competitive with the 3P business. Um, so that's a win. Uh, also, Amazon charges a 2.9% fee on all sales in order to calculate and collect tax for those 3P sellers. So this is a huge new service fee that Amazon's going to start collecting from all their marketplace vendors. So that's a, a, a big win. Um, and so in, in essence, like 
this ruling makes Amazon more competitive with everyone else and really doesn't hurt Amazon's competitiveness um, in any meaningful way, uh, which is which is interesting. And I, I would argue a lot of the 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 media and, and folks got wrong uh, when they when they first heard about this announcement, who's probably getting hurt by this is a lot of the small sellers. Right. If you are a, a a, a small business that's primarily selling via 3P on Amazon and eBay, uh, you know, your your cost just went up. And potentially, uh, there are about 12,000 tax jurisdictions in the U.S. And so every one of those jurisdictions, in theory, could now pass a law that says you have to collect their tax and they could each have their own rules for the tax. And so it, there could be a huge burden to these sellers track and calculate these 12,000 different tax laws. Um, and so, you know, not only do you have to collect the tax, but you have to pay a bunch of money to collect the tax properly. And that is a potential big burden for these small sellers. Um, I would argue there's very few small brick and mortar retailers that aren't also trying to sell online and aren't also trying to ship out of state. So, you know, when people talk about this law benefiting Main Street, it's only benefiting the dinosaurs on Main Street that haven't figured out how to launch a Shopify site yet, right? Um, and so, so it it is going to be a, a a potential burden on, on these small businesses. And what's going to be most interesting to watch now is that the South Dakota version of the tax law is a very mild version of the law. It essentially says that all the different cities in South Dakota can't charge their own individual taxes. That that um, uh, we're going to have a statewide system that's easier for businesses to comply with. And it, the law also says that the state can't collect taxes retroactively. So no one's going to be on the hook for their sales over the last five years. But any new state could now pass a, a, a more aggressive version of the law that has more burdens for the, the small business um, and that even tries to retroactively collect taxes for the last five years. Um, and it's it's unclear based on the Supreme Court ruling whether whether the states will be able to get away with the the more aggressive version of this law. So that it's it's kind of going to throw the tech uh, e-commerce taxes into a little bit of chaos while this all plays out. And you know, I think everyone's hope, which seems like a long shot, is that what what could really simplify all this is if Congress um, sort of enacted a a law that clarified what what uh, how how states should treat these taxes, and Congress could pass a national law that essentially says all the states have to uh, you know follow the same system and charge the same rate. And there's lots of drafts of these kind of laws. There was one that was drafted a couple of years ago called the Marketplace Fairness Act, um, and it it could allow all the states to collect sales tax, but dramatically simplify the process of collecting those taxes for all the, the online sellers and protect all the online sellers from retroactive taxes and things like that. So like w- the right thing to do for our economy would be for Congress to to pass a law. But, it you know, uh, it seems like there's a lot of partisan stuff going on in Congress and, you know, it doesn't seem like they're 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 passing a heck of a lot of common sense legislation at the moment. Yeah, and another interesting win for Amazon is there's a fair number of people that don't use FBA because Amazon shifts product around in FBA. And if you're one of these companies that's really, you know, uh, very carefully watching where your nexus is, you can't say to Amazon, uh, you can't say two things. You can't say a, I only want my product in these FBA facilities. You also can't say you know, where is my product right now? So I can make sure that I'm tracking where I kind of could have Nexus or not. Um, So, you know, presumably this gets rid of that both objection and now you might as well just use FBA. So another win for Amazon is FBA. Uh, You know, if if we're going to go to a world pretty quickly here, which seems like what you're predicting where every state is charging some form of tax, then FBA is another, you know, it's going to get more users um, because it's going to be, you know, uh, there, there are no negatives for for doing that around Nexus. How do you so so if I'm a let's say I'm a um, an eBay or an Amazon seller today, what do I do? Do I need to start collecting tax in South? Everyone should start that right now. Like, uh, what's the action item on yeah. this? Yeah. So at the moment, you're only on the hook for the states you have a physical Nexus in, 
and South Dakota. Um, okay. that e- each state has to pass an out-of-state tax collection law uh, in order uh, for them to then uh, put this burden on, on sellers. And there are a number of states that have laws going through their state legislature right now. And so, like, your, your immediate action is that you, you do need to start, um, you do now have a tax liability in South Dakota um, based on this ruling. Um, but you can anticipate uh, that in very short order, all the states are desperate for money. So, of course, they're all going to pass a law. Some of the legislatures are in a position to do it real fast. Some are going to be slow and, and complicated. Um, but the burden is going to keep going up. And almost, you know, certainly the the way that most sellers are going to have to do this is you're going to have to pay a third party to calculate and remit all these taxes on your behalf. And so that's another big winner in this is uh, companies like uh, TaxJar and Vertax and Alvera and those those companies that, that help businesses calculate and remit sales tax. Yeah. Now, um, physical stores, the taxes get down to, you know, literally the municipality. So you could be in, you know, Secaucus, New Jersey, and they have a different apparel tax. There's a tax on shipping, but then certain, you know, there's no food tax or something. Then you, you cross into another area and the taxes are all different. You, you think this is going to get that complex or are each of these municipalities going to try to take their local tax structure and make it a national kind of for that city kind of thing. Yeah. So here's going to be the balancing act. All the municipalities would like to pass their own laws. So Secaucus would definitely like to have their own tax collection law and have their, their sales tax laws imposed on all out of uh, jurisdiction sellers. Uh, The thing that's going to keep them all from doing that um, is that there's a, um, a a clause in uh, the, the um the the law the prevailing tax laws that says um states cannot put an undue burden on cross state commerce and so the the argument is going to be that if every municipality have their own set of laws and Secaucus has a tax holiday on this particular day and doesn't tax food and all these different things um that 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 uh, is going to trigger the commerce clause and and put an undue burden, right? And so part of the reason that the Supreme Court said they ruled in favor of South Dakota is be- the law was was very carefully written to try to minimize the 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 burden, right? And so they don't they, they it explicitly does not allow individual municipalities in South Dakota to have their own tax laws. Like they all there there's a statewide tax system for out-of-state sellers. And so it, you know, the, the Supreme Court didn't rule on any law other than the South Dakota version. So if Secaucus now passes a really, you know, burdensome law, and again, Secaucus could also say, and you owe us taxes for the last five years of sales, um, then, you know, uh, someone's going to be able to litigate that and say it's a violation of the Commerce Clause, and that potentially could make it back to the Supreme Court. And you, you know, you the Supreme Court could choose to hear it or not, and they could, you know, essentially say, "Hey, the South Dakota version is uh, legal, but the more, you know, arduous uh, Secaucus version is not legal." Um, and so there's, there's, you know, every state's going to have to balance how aggressive they want to be, you know, with with uh, how much legal jeopardy they 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 want to uh, assume, you know, in case these these things get litigated. Yeah, so it feels like it's going to take like five to ten years for this all to sort out, and it's kind of a kind of a boring plumbing topic, but I think it's important for listeners because a lot of the articles I read were super confusing, uh, and I think you did a good job of summarizing. Thanks, man. Uh, one last point that just like was kind of sad. Like, if you actually listen to the uh, the oral arguments in the case. Like the the justices were asking really good questions. How expensive is it for a small business to calculate their tax liability? If this if we rule in favor of South Dakota, how you know how much is incremental cost is is that going to impose on Wayfair, right? Um, and like it, it was really embarrassing how how little tangible information the lawyers in both sides of this case had in how e commerce works. And I I say that like. If you're a lawyer, like arguing a case before the Supreme Court, that is like the Super Bowl of 
litigation, right? And you would expect like the most prepared, best teams. Um, and yet, you know, it, it felt like the the level of preparation and knowledge about how digital commerce worked, you know, was was pretty, pretty lacking. And the justices openly expressed frustration that they couldn't get, you know, clear answers to to, you know, some some reasonable questions about this. So, it you know, it's further further evidence that, uh, you know, the economy and technology are way, way, way ahead of the legal system. Cool. Oh, I nominate you to be a expert for the next Supreme Court hearing on this. Yeah, uh, I I would make myself available. That would be a, a pretty awesome gig. Yeah, and you get to wear a suit. How fun is that? I I have done some federal expert witness stuff, and uh, uh, you know I I'm I'm willing to wear a suit for the the fees that you're able to charge as an expert witness. <laughs> Cool. Well, that, that kind of wraps up the news section of the show, and let's transition into some listener questions. We... Listener questions. All right. Got the echo turned way up on that one. Uh, our first question is pretty technical, and it comes from a friend of the show, Scott Silverman. Um, this one goes back, uh, you mentioned this kind of, uh, you know, phrase recently sniffing the tires. Uh, Scott wants to know, what do you recommend is the best technique for sniffing tires? Hey, Scott, uh, totally appreciate the question. Um, I sort of two part answer. If you are a casual tire sniffer, I think what you want to do is just, you know, get down on the ground, uh, get, get your nose as close to the tires as possible, um, and, you know, really just sort of in, intake the, the fumes. But if you're going to be a serious professional tire sniffer, what you really want to do is get the hydraulic jack and raise the car up um, to nose level because that actually uh, allows a lot more oxygen under the tires, which, which, you know, helps more molecules get in your nose and really get you the whole bouquet of the tires. And, and of course, it's important to uh, take the vehicle for a spin before you do this, so you get that like nice, fresh smell. Yeah, you do want the the rubber warmed up. Absolutely, great point. Cool. Our second question comes from, uh, and I, I'll do a blanket apology. There's uh, some last names in here that may be a little tricky, but I'll do my best. This is from Alex Volakis, uh, and he asks: Should others try the Warby Parker school bus store concept? Uh, and who do you think would benefit most from it? I had no idea what this was, so I figured this was a good question for you. Yeah. Uh, so this is one of the early marketing tactics that Warby Parker did. I think they actually did this before they opened a formal store. Um, so they, I think they maybe were using their corporate headquarters as a showroom. But essentially what they did is they bought an old school bus, decked it out, um, and started driving to uh, events and venues and things um, and letting people try on uh, their glasses. Um, and it was a super effective marketing vehicle. It's sort of a mobile pop-up store, if you will. Um, and so in general, I would say those kinds of things are a great tactic particularly for e-commerce businesses where you're, you know, uh, you feel like you'd benefit from a physical presence, like a, a pop-up store avoids a lot of the costs of, uh, permanent rent, you know, which a lot of the times of the year, the traffic, uh, in that, that store is going to be low. So you can do a pop-up just around peak times. And instead of it being fixed to one location, the idea behind this bus is you could send the bus to a lot of different locations. Um, so there, you know, uh, Warby Parker is particularly clever, and they've done a bunch of versions of uh, since the school bus. Um, so they continue to use that tactic. I do think it's a good customer acquisition and brand building tactic. Um, the There's actually a retailer that's been doing it much longer. L.L. Uh, L. Bean um, literally have a, uh, a bus built in the uh, shape of their iconic rubber boot that they drive around and let people try on boots and kind of build their brand through that. And they, they send it to outdoor festivals and stuff where, where people might be interested in the boot. So I think it's a good tactic. Uh, a lot of brands could potentially benefit from it, but the brands that would most benefit from it um, is if there's a, a physical or experiential element to the kind of products you're selling so that it's, not only are you building your brand and awareness, but you're also helping people, you know, get that tactile experience. So if you're selling, 
you know, food and, and, you know, that gives people a chance to try it or you're selling apparel and that gives people a chance to try sizes or um, uh, feel the textiles or, or, you know, things like that are particularly going to benefit from these kind of mobile pop-up stores. Cool. Uh, and thanks for the question, Alex. So I think the next question is from Amit Agarwal. And uh, thanks, Scott, for disclaiming that we're massacring names. Uh, do customers like bundled products or do they like to create their own bundles? What are different merchandising tactics used to sell collections of products? Yeah, this is uh, this is a good one. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of depends. So... I like a system where the consumer has the, you know, a fair amount of power and convenience and they can choose to either buy a core product and its associated add-ons. Um, and you have an e-commerce system that is smart enough to kind of recommend the right things, you know? So it's not kind of recommending, uh, these things that are kind of random, but that are frequently bought together, uh, which is a feature that you see on Amazon all the time. Now, uh, one tactic where this comes up a lot is in the world of marketplaces where, Frequently, um, you'll be selling where you see this the most is in digital cameras. So this is a kind of a case study of this. So what you see is uh, you go to Amazon and you search for, you know, a Canon D40, which is a common um, you know, camera. And, you know, the top skew you see is that core camera body skew. Um, but then what a lot of people do is they will create a new SKU by creating a unique bundle and they'll take a camera, a memory card, a set of lenses, uh, and a bag and a variety of things. And they'll create a new SKU, a new ASIN in Amazon parlance. Uh, and the benefit of doing that is you can kind of, a, you, you show up separate from the, the competitors for that core camera, and B, therefore, you know, when the consumer searches for Canon D40, if you've done this right, you should have a pretty good shot at showing up, uh, you know, a higher level. Um, and then C, you can effectively have a, a price that is much dis significantly discounted for that bundle and you're effectively hiding, you know, the discount and the margin by obfuscating it to the consumer, making it harder for them to price compare. Um, so, so those are some of the things now. You know, uh, the, this hold trues, holds true for uh, other marketplaces like eBay and Walmart, et cetera. Now, uh, the downside of this is, you know, marketplaces are wise to this. They're frequently kind of challenging these things and saying, hmm, you know, does this bundle really make sense? What are you doing here? Are you kind of ruining the customer experience? Um, so I, I've seen that used in, in, as a merchandising tactic there. Um, and that can be used on your own website too. Uh, another thing I've seen is we have at Channelvisor, we have this uh, very clever skateboard seller. Uh, and they've come up with a couple private labels, like their own wheels and things like that. So when they, they take a deck in skateboarding, you have the deck, which is just sold without wheels and, and the, uh, the other pieces is there uh and then they they take some private label stuff or owned brands to use jason's language uh and it does create this kind of unique bundle that then isn't available anywhere else and they can do a lot of really interesting things with pricing on that because they can't really change due to map the deck price but when they put their wheels on there they can offer this bundle that that is you know more competitive than anything else out there because they have got an owned brand on the wheels and they have more margin and they can pass that on to the consumer um so those are some of the things that come to mind for me jason anything you want to add on bundling yeah i would just say like the, there are two similar but different things um and my experience is in different circumstances, consumers want both. So, so every e-commerce platform uses a different vernacular, but uh, a common vernacular would be bundles versus kits, right? And so uh, in this scenario, a bundle um, could be a set of things that are recommended to go together, right? So shop the look, you, you one-click button, and you add the blouse, the pants, the belt, and the shoes. Um, but all four things get separately added to your cart and then you could edit the cart you could get two pair of the the blouses if you wanted and you could delete the shoes if you already had the shoes for example um so it's a a shopping convenience to put related items together um you know and and apparel is a common version of that like in crafting it could be a kit or a project like all the all the items you need to 
make a sweater or or something like that. Um, in food, it could be buy the recipe to get all the ingredients for a, a particular dish. Um, but you know, of course, the customer might already have salt, so you 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 know the customer could take salt out of the cart after they they bought that bundle. Um, and in kits are often hard-coded things that have to go together. So it's one skew. It shows up as one line item in the cart. You can't edit it. Um, if any of the items in that kit are unavailable, then the then the the kit is unavailable and the order would get back ordered and things like that. And so there, there are certain types of products uh, that lend themselves to kits. And to your point, if you're going to have a special price on the the, the multiple item configuration, then you probably want that to be a kit because you wouldn't want customers to then delete three of the four items and still get a special price. Um, but uh, in some cases, you just want to make it easier for people to buy multiple things and have a, a higher overall cart. And then there's a lot of nuances in the kits. Are they hard-coded manual kits, what you would often call a static kit, where you know the SKUs are permanently tied together, are there dynamic kits that are built by recommendation engines or things like that? Are there customizable kits, you know, that have different options that customers can pick via via attribute type selections? And and so it, it is a super complicated thing. Um, and it is one of the things that can differentiate some of the e-commerce platforms from the others is uh, their support for a broad range of these different options very wildly. And then when you throw in the ability to offer promotions on top of these bundles or kits, that can get super complicated. And so that, you know, if you know that that's a core part of your business, that might drive you to select one one e-commerce platform versus another because it might have better support for the the, the particular model you're using. Cool. Um, is anyone using AI to solve this? Like, um, you know, I think, I think Amazon's is kind of a group thing. Um, I'm sure there's got to be like 10 AI vendors out there trying to solve this kind of, you know, recommended product thing. Yeah. And so, I mean, uh, <laughs> the semantics get tricky. Like I would argue that the, the product recommendation vendors that have been around for 12 years, like the rich relevance and the Sertonas, like they're, they're heavily AI based solutions. So it's almost like saying AI recommendations versus not is kind of a, a, a difficult distinction to make. Um, the the most of the product recommendation products that I'm aware of, though, you know, are going to be closer to, you know, the most common model is they're going to recommend other products, and you have to click each product separately to add it to the cart. Um, they may offer bundles, which is one click ordering, right? And and Amazon does bundle the recommendations, right? So right below the main product information on the product detail page. There's always going to be a buy these three three things together, which is, you know, it's the AI-based recommendation engine. It's putting the three things that you most want together, and you can choose to add one, two, or three of those things to your cart. So that's just a, a smart convenience that Amazon's done to try to get the AOV up. Um, but the, the company that's the best example of using AI to actually create kits, if you will, is probably going to be Stitch Fix, right? Because they send one SKU to your house, which is a fix with five items in it. And they're primarily using AI to select which five items they send to your house. Very cool. Our next question comes from Jill Dvorak. Uh, and she asks any leadership or managing through change tactics. Uh, and then over on the Facebook group, I asked her a clarification on that. If she could be, you know, I, I gave her a couple of choices there. Uh, and she said, you know, more at the corporate level. So, so let's assume you're one of these brands that's been around for a hundred years. Uh, and this is very much in the news right now where a lot of these activists are going into established brands and brand houses and shaking them up and, uh, you know, really getting agitated. They're not doing enough direct to consumer. Uh, you've seen folks like Campbell's down 30, 40%, uh, due to all, all these changes happening. Uh, and you know, uh, her, her question is essentially, how do these companies become more nimble? You know, you, you've had this kind of hundred year plus world where the consumer didn't change very much, and now they're changing constantly. Um, what what do you recommend a brand do to get more nimble? Yeah, it's a great question, Jill. And um, the real answer is, if I had a perfect recommendation, 
Um, I probably wouldn't be bothering to do this podcast because it would make my job so much easier that I'd be, you know, living on an island somewhere. Um, because it is a huge challenge. And generally, you see digitally native companies are much better at being agile and nimble um, than big established brands. And it just so happens in my practice, I mainly work with big established brands, and they all struggle with being at a, a speed disadvantage um, to these small companies. And the, the one exception is, you know, that the giant company Amazon is annoyingly uh, uh, agile and, and uh, innovative despite their, their size and the fact that they're, you know, now 20 years old. Um, so two things to think about here. Uh, the first is like a big question that always comes up is ivory tower innovation versus grassroots innovation, right? So, you know, ivory tower would be Let's set up an innovation lab, right? You know, your target, let's set up an innovation lab, you know, you're in Minneapolis, let's set up an innovation lab in San Mateo, California, and let's hire a bunch of people whose only job is to be innovative and let them come up with all the new ideas. Um, and if you're a store manager in Minnesota, um, you know, it's not your job to be innovative, right? And so by having a dedicated focus on innovation, the hope is these innovation labs can can be more efficient. You know, there was a huge trend in retail towards these labs and Target, Nordstrom, Zappos, Walmart, you know, all were opening opening these standalone labs. Um, that while some retailers definitely still have these labs, I would argue the trend is a little bit against the standalone labs. So we've seen a lot of the retailers, including uh, Target, Nordstrom, uh, and Zappos move away from the dedicated innovation lab model. And so the alternative is uh, create the ability for innovation to come from the, the mainline grassroots employees, right? And so uh, the, the marquee example of this is not a retailer for me. It's, it's Adobe, and they have this clever product called um, uh, or process called the, the Adobe Redbox. And essentially, any employee at Adobe that thinks they have a good idea for a new product or process or um, or service at Adobe can apply for this thing called an Adobe Redbox, and it's an innovation kit, um, and it's all the tools you need to sort of prototype your idea um, and get it to a level where you can present it um, to a, a, a sort of jury of senior management at the uh, at Adobe. And so it, you know, it's pretty clever. It has things like a debit card in it that you can use to buy, you know, web hosting services. And it has, uh, you know, like billing codes you can get to, you know, provide to some of your colleagues to have them help you with certain things. Um, and so the, the idea is to make it easy for anybody with a good idea anywhere across the, the organization to pursue that idea. Um, and so at the moment, I see more retailers trying to foster innovation through um, providing bit processes and tools to their mainline employees than I do the ivory tower. Um, but I, I've certainly seen both work and I've seen both fail. Uh, the biggest advice I give to legacy clients um, to succeed in innovation is not so much where that innovation sits in the organization. It's how the innovation is approached. And here, I, I highly recommend uh, um, sort of imitating the Amazon model, right? So, you know, Amazon famously has this two pizza team model. Um, and the the premise behind that is, hey, any project we do, uh, we're going to um, narrow the scope such that it can be performed by, you know, a, a team no larger than could be fed by two pizzas. Um, so that could be, you know, one prodigious software developer, or, you know, it might be six or seven uh, people in a, in another department. Um, but the, the idea being the way to do innovation is not to do some grand pilot that has to integrate with 37 legacy systems and has to get approval from 18 different departments and requires a team of 40. Um, and you know, by the time you, you get an experience live, you will have spent so much money and effort that, you know, if, if the experience isn't successful, you know, you you cost your company a fortune. Um, and even if it is successful, like the the business probably, you know, shifted from the time you started to the time you finished. Um, the most successful innovations are when you can, you know, uh, find guerrilla ways to do things, scale it and make the the pilot as 
independent and distinct from the rest of the organization as possible, right? And so to me, the great example of that is Amazon Prime Now, you know, when they said like, hey, we want to deliver stuff in one hour, they didn't say, all right, let's get a meeting together with the leaders of the fulfillment center and figure out how we carve off some space in the fulfillment center and figure out how we change all our software in the fulfillment center to support this one hour delivery and do all these things. They they got some guys that said, hey, we're going to buy our own, you know, even though we own all this stuff, we're going to buy our own building for this pilot and we're going to write all our own software and we're going to just keep things as simple and independent as possible get the experience out there in front of the customer as quickly as possible and learn from the customer um, which elements of our idea are valuable and valued by the customer and which ones aren't, and we're going to refine it from there. And only after we've proven the innovation and refined it are we going to figure out how to integrate it into the rest of the enterprise. So I, I really like that sort of uh, independence. And, and you know we highly encourage a lot of these big legacy brands to sort of adopt a more agile business process. So we talk about agile a lot as a development technique technique, but it really can be a, a a business process and to, you know, sort of isolate these, these projects as much as possible and make them independent uh, initiatives. That's awesome. So I'm a, I come at it from a startup uh, guy perspective. I'm on my fourth company I've started and uh, like you, I've worked with a lot of brands and, you know, I, th- I think the step a lot of them get wrong is what I would call buy-in. So they'll, they'll start doing something kind of innovative, like selling direct or something. And then the VP of sales will say, Whoa, Hey, wait a minute. What are we doing? I've got an upset uh, channel partner that's upset. We're selling direct. And then they'll, they'll panic and they'll unwind the whole thing. Um, so, so before you go down some of the steps you recommended, uh, you know, I, I think the key is you got to get complete buy-in from the whole management team that this is going to be something that everyone's committed to, uh, a book that I, I, you know, that kind of started this discussion is the innovators dilemma. This is kind of a must read for people interested in this topic. Um, and this by Clayton Christensen, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, and you know, what this book essentially does is it talks about how how do companies get in this position and why? And then it has some case studies of the very few com- companies that have gotten out of this position. Um, so it's really important to get that buy-in from everybody because if everyone's not bought in, you'll go through this whole failure cycle of trying to do something really innovative as a brand and then it gets squashed by people that really aren't bought in. Uh, and then you know, uh, from there, another thing that happens in companies that are large and older is – a lot of ideas get squished because what I call exception-based management, where you'll come up with this idea and then the what-ifs start to happen, the edge cases. Well, you know, what if, you know, a, you know, what if this isn't profitable? What if this and that and the other? And that becomes, uh, you just get kind of stuck in tar with that. You have to you have to get everyone bought into taking some risk that the company's also not used to. Uh, Bezos has a really good uh, letter on this about at Amazon where they have um, commit to disagree is kind of a thing, you know, so, so we, you know, we disagree, but let's try it and see what happens. Like, why not try it? Just go try something. Uh, and to that uh, end, there's a really good book. Uh, Jason mentioned, you know, taking some of these agile kind of concepts out of software development, putting them in your company. Uh, one of my favorites is called Lean Startups. Uh, now, this is geared towards when you're starting a company, but I think big companies can learn a lot there. And it kind of educates you on the language of startups, uh, you know, uh, Facebook kind of famously has said, go fast and break stuff. And that's really kind of creating an orientation towards not worrying about the exceptions and guessing, but but put something out there and take a little risk and then see how customers react to it and then course correct quickly. So the answer to, you know, the what ifs is, well, what, you know, maybe not. And we won't know until you try. So you got to kind of get your culture oriented towards trying stuff rapidly and iterating versus kind of a 18 month cycle of planning and hand wringing and getting every little detail done and then putting something out Uh, to be agile. You have to be able to put something out and fail uh, and go over and over again. The case study there for Amazon that's classic is the fire phone. You know, they, they put a phone out there. There was a million reasons it would fail and it failed. Jason and I, I think are the only people that have one. Uh, but if they didn't fail at that fire phone, they would have never done echo because they really wanted to be in the platform world. They realized the failure of the phone that that wasn't going to be it. And then they went all in on echo and, you know, 
that is part of the culture they have is it's okay to fail. Just got to do it quickly and iterate and learn. You can't just kind of like dig an infinitely deep hole. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, well, Scott, we have a few more uh, great listener questions, but I actually think uh, we are going to have to hold them for our next show because it has happened again. Uh, we've used up the an hour of our uh, listeners' very valuable time. Um, and so uh, if you enjoyed the show, we certainly would appreciate that uh, five-star review on iTunes. If you have any more uh, questions or follow-ups on these questions, uh, please do jump on our Facebook page and drop us a line or, or hit either of us up on uh, Twitter because um, we will pick up the remainder of these questions and any new ones in the next show. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Until next time, happy conversing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.